Section 39 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 11. Chapter 4. The History of Mrs. Fitzpatrick. Mrs. Fitzpatrick, after a silence of a few moments, fetching a deep sigh, thus began. It is natural to the unhappy to feel a secret concern in recollecting those periods of their lives which have been most delightful to them. The remembrance of past pleasures affects us with a kind of tender grief, like what we suffer for departed friends, and the ideas of both may be said to haunt our imaginations. For this reason I never reflect without sorrow on those days, the happiest far of my life, which we spent together when both were under the care of my aunt Western. Alas, why are Miss Graveairs and Miss Giddy no more? You remember, I am sure, when we knew each other by no other names. Indeed, you gave the latter appellation with too much cause. I have since experienced how much I deserved it. You, my Sophia, was always my superior in everything, and I heartily hope you will be so in your fortune. I shall never forget the wise and matronly advice you once gave me, when I lamented being disappointed of a ball, though you could not be then fourteen years old. Oh, my Sophie, how blessed must have been my situation, when I could think such a disappointment a misfortune, and when indeed it was the greatest I had ever known. And yet, my dear Harriet, answered Sophia, it was then a serious matter with you. Comfort yourself, therefore, with thinking, that whatever you now lament may hereafter appear as trifling and contemptible as a ball would at this time. Alas, my Sophia, replied the other lady, you yourself will think otherwise of my present situation, for greatly must that tender heart be altered if my misfortunes do not draw many a sigh, nay, many a tear, from you. The knowledge of this should perhaps deter me from relating what I am convinced will so much affect you. Here Mrs. Fitzpatrick stopped, till, at the repeated entreaties of Sophia, she thus proceeded. Though you must have heard much of my marriage, yet, as matters may probably have been misrepresented, I will set out from the very commencement of my unfortunate acquaintance with my present husband, which was at Bath, soon after you left my aunt and returned home to your father. Among the gay young fellows who were at this season at Bath, Mr. Fitzpatrick was one. He was handsome, dégagé, extremely gallant, and in his dress exceeded most others. In short, my dear, if you was unluckily to see him now, I could describe him no better than by telling you he was the very reverse of everything which he is, for he hath rusticated himself so long that he has become an absolute wild Irishman. But to proceed in my story, the qualifications which he then possessed so well recommended him that, though the people of quality at that time lived separate from the rest of the company, and excluded them from all their parties, Mr. Fitzpatrick found means to gain admittance. It was perhaps no easy matter to avoid him, for he required very little or no invitation, and as, being handsome and genteel, he found it no very difficult matter to ingratiate himself with the ladies, so, he having frequently drawn his sword, the men did not care publicly to affront him. Had it not been for some such reason, I believe he would have been soon expelled by his own sex, for surely he had no strict title to be preferred to the English gentry, nor did they seem inclined to show him any extraordinary favor. They all abused him behind his back, which might probably proceed from envy, for by the women he was well received, and very particularly distinguished by them. My aunt, though no person of quality herself, as she had always lived about the court, was enrolled in that party, for by whatever means you get into the polite circle when you are once there, it is sufficient merit for you that you are there. This observation, young as you was, 
you could scarce avoid making for my aunt, who was free or reserved with all people just as they had more or less of this merit. And this merit, I believe, it was, which principally recommended Mr. Fitzpatrick to her favor, in which he so well succeeded that he was always one of her private parties. Nor was he backward in returning such distinction, for he soon grew so very particular in his behavior to her that the scandal club first began to take notice of it, and the better disposed persons made a match between them. For my own part, I confess, I made no doubt but that his designs were strictly honorable, as the phrase is, that is, to rob a lady of her fortune by way of marriage. My aunt was, I conceive, neither young enough nor handsome enough to attract much wicked inclination, but she had matrimonial charms in great abundance. I was the more confirmed in this opinion from the extraordinary respect which he showed to myself from the first moment of our acquaintance. This I understood as an attempt to lessen, if possible, that disinclination which my interest might be supposed to give me towards the match. And I know not, but in some measure it had that effect. For, as I was well contented with my own fortune, and of all people the least a slave to interested views, so I could not be violently the enemy of a man with whose behavior to me I was greatly pleased. And the more so, as I was the only object of such respect, for he behaved at the same time to many women of quality without any respect at all. Agreeable as this was to me, he soon changed it into another kind of behavior, which was perhaps more so. He now put on much softness and tenderness, and languished and sighed abundantly. At times, indeed, whether from art or nature I will not determine, he gave his usual loose to gaiety and mirth. But this was always in general company and with other women. For even in a country dance, when he was not my partner, he became grave, and put on the softest look imaginable the moment he approached me. Indeed, he was in all things so very particular towards me, that I must have been blind not to have discovered it. And, and... And, and you is more pleased still, my dear Harriet, cries Sophia. You need not be ashamed, added she, sighing. For sure there are irresistible charms and tenderness, which too many men are able to affect. True, answered her cousin. Men, who in all other instances want common sense, are very Machiavels in the art of loving. I wish I did not know an instance. Well, scandal now began to be as busy with me as it had before been with my aunt, and some good ladies did not scruple to affirm that Mr. Fitzpatrick had an intrigue with us both. But what may seem astonishing, my aunt never saw, nor in the least seemed to suspect, that which was visible enough, I believe, from both our behaviors. One would indeed think that love quite puts out the eyes of an old woman. In fact, they so greedily swallow the addresses which are made to them that, like an outrageous glutton, they are not at leisure to observe what passes amongst others at the same table. This I have observed in more cases than my own, and this was so strongly verified by my aunt that, though she often found us together at her return from the pump, the least canting word of his, pretending impatience at her absence, effectually smothered all suspicion. One artifice succeeded with her to admiration. This was his treating me like a little child, and never calling me by any other name in her presence but that of pretty miss. This indeed did him some disservice with your humble servant, but I soon saw through it, especially as in her absence he behaved to me, as I have said, in a different manner. However, if I was not greatly disobliged by a conduct of which I had discovered the design, I smarted very severely for it, for my aunt really conceived me to be what her lover, as she thought him, called me, and treated me in all respects as a perfect infant. To say the truth, I wonder she had not insisted on my again wearing leading strings. At last, my lover, for so he was, thought proper, in a most solemn manner, to disclose a secret which I had known long before. 
He now placed all the love which he had pretended to my aunt to my account. He lamented, in very pathetic terms, the encouragement she had given him, and made a high merit of the tedious hours in which he had undergone her conversation. "'What shall I tell you, my dear Sophia?' "'Then I will confess the truth. I was pleased with my man. I was pleased with my conquest. To rival my aunt delighted me. To rival so many other women charmed me. In short, I am afraid I did not behave as I should do, even upon the very first declaration. I wish I did not almost give him positive encouragement before we parted.' The bath now talked loudly. I might almost say roared against me. Several young women affected to shun my acquaintance, not so much perhaps from any real suspicion as from a desire of banishing me from a company in which I had too much engrossed their favorite man. And here I cannot omit expressing my gratitude to the kindness intended me by Mr. Nash, who took me one day aside and gave me advice, which if I had followed, I had been a happy woman. Child, says he. I am sorry to see the familiarity which subsists between you and a fellow who is altogether unworthy of you, and I am afraid will prove your ruin. As for your old stinking aunt, if it was to be no injury to you and my pretty Sophie Western, I assure you I repeat his words, I should be heartily glad that the fellow is in possession of all that belongs to her. I never advise old women, for if they take it into their heads to go to the devil, it is no more possible than worthwhile to keep them from him. Innocence and youth and beauty are worthy a better fate, and I would save them from his clutches. Let me advise you, therefore, dear child, never suffer this fellow to be particular with you again. Many more things he said to me, which I have now forgotten, and indeed I attended very little to them at the time, for inclination contradicted all he said, and besides I could not be persuaded that women of quality would condescend to familiarity with such a person as he described. But I am afraid, my dear, I shall tire you with a detail of so many minute circumstances. To be concise, therefore, imagine me married. Imagine me with my husband at the feet of my aunt, and then imagine the maddest woman in Bedlam in a raving fit, and your imagination will suggest to you no more than what really happened. The very next day my aunt left the place, partly to avoid seeing Mr. Fitzpatrick or myself, and as much perhaps to avoid seeing anyone else. For, though I am told she hath since denied everything stoutly, I believe she was then a little confounded at her disappointment. Since that time I have written to her many letters, but never could obtain an answer, which I must own sits somewhat the heavier, as she herself was, though undesignedly, the occasion of all my sufferings. For, had it not been under the color of paying his addresses to her, Mr. Fitzpatrick would never have found sufficient opportunities to have engaged my heart, which, in other circumstances, I still flatter myself would not have been an easy conquest of such a person." Indeed, I believe I should not have erred so grossly in my choice if I had relied on my own judgment. But I trusted totally to the opinion of others, and very foolishly took the merit of a man for granted, whom I saw so universally well received by the women. What is the reason, my dear, that we, who have understandings equal to the wisest and greatest of the other sex, so often make choice of the silliest fellows for companions and favorites? It raises my indignation to the highest pitch to reflect on the numbers of women of sense who have been undone by fools." Here she paused a moment, but, Sophia making no answer, she proceeded as in the next chapter. Chapter 5. In which the history of Mrs. Fitzpatrick is continued. We remained at Bath no longer than a fortnight after our wedding, for as to any reconciliation with my aunt there were no hopes, and of my fortune not one farthing could be touched till I was of age, of which I now wanted more than two years. 
My husband, therefore, was resolved to set out for Ireland, against which I remonstrated very earnestly, and insisted on a promise which he had made me before our marriage that I should never take this journey against my consent. And, indeed, I never intended to consent to it, nor will anybody, I believe, blame me for that resolution. But this, however, I never mentioned to my husband, and petitioned only for the reprieve of a month. But he had fixed the day, and to that day he obstinately adhered. The evening before our departure, as we were disputing this point with great eagerness on both sides, he started suddenly from his chair, and left me abruptly, saying he was going to the rooms. He was hardly out of the house when I saw a paper lying on the floor, which I suppose he had carelessly pulled from his pocket, together with his handkerchief. This paper I took up, and, finding it to be a letter, I made no scruple to open and read it. And, indeed, I read it so often that I can repeat it to you almost word for word. This, then, was the letter. To Mr. Brian Fitzpatrick. Sir, yours received, and am surprised you should use me in this manner, as have never seen any of your cash, unless for one Lindsay Woolsey coat, and your bill now is upwards of a hundred and fifty pounds. Consider, sir, how often you have fobbed me off with your being shortly to be married to this lady and t'other lady. But I can neither live on hopes or promises, nor will my woolen draper take any such in payment. You tell me you are secure of having either the aunt or the niece, and that you might have married the aunt before this, whose jointure you say is immense, but that you prefer the niece on account of her ready money. Pray, sir, take a fool's advice for once, and marry the first you can get. You will pardon my offering my advice, as you know I sincerely wish you well. Shall draw on you per next post in favor of Messrs. John Drugget and Company, at fourteen days, which doubt not your honoring, and am, sir, your humble servant, Sam Cosgrave. This was the letter word for word. Guess, my dear girl, guess how this letter affected me. You prefer the niece on account of her ready money. If every one of these words had been a dagger, I could with pleasure have stabbed them into his heart. But I will not recount my frantic behavior on the occasion. I had pretty well spent my tears before his return home, but sufficient remains of them appeared in my swollen eyes. He threw himself sullenly into his chair, and for a long time we were both silent. At length, in a haughty tone, he said, I hope, madam, your servants have packed up all your things, for the coach will be ready by six in the morning. My patience was totally subdued by this provocation, and I answered, No, sir, there is a letter still remains unpacked, and then throwing it on the table I fell to upbraiding him with the most bitter language I could invent. Whether guilt or shame or prudence restrained him, I cannot say. But— Though he is the most passionate of men, he exerted no rage on this occasion. He endeavored, on the contrary, to pacify me by the most gentle means. He swore the phrase in the letter to which I principally objected was not his, nor had he ever written any such. He owned, indeed, the having mentioned his marriage, and that preference which he had given to myself, but denied with many oaths the having mentioned any such matter at all on account of the straits he was in for money, arising, he said, from his having too long neglected his estate in Ireland." And this, he said, which he could not bear to discover to me, was the only reason of his having so strenuously insisted on our journey. He then used several very endearing expressions, and concluded by a very fond caress and many violent protestations of love. There was one circumstance which, though he did not appeal to it, had much weight with me in his favor, and that was the word jointure in the tailor's letter, whereas my aunt never had been married, and this Mr. Fitzpatrick well knew. 
as I imagined, therefore, that the fellow might have inserted this of his own head, or from hearsay, I persuaded myself he might have ventured likewise on that odious line on no better authority. What reasoning was this, my dear? Was I not an advocate rather than a judge? But why do I mention such a circumstance as this, or appeal to it for the justification of my forgiveness? In short, had he been guilty of twenty times as much, half the tenderness and fondness which he used would have prevailed on me to have forgiven him. I now made no farther objections to our setting out, which we did the next morning, and in a little more than a week arrived at the seat of Mr. Fitzpatrick. Your curiosity will excuse me from relating any occurrences which passed during our journey, for it would indeed be highly disagreeable to travel it over again, and no less so to you to travel it over with me. This seat, then, is an ancient mansion-house. If I was in one of those merry humors in which you have so often seen me, I could describe it to you ridiculously enough. It looked as if it had been formerly inhabited by a gentleman. Here was room enough, and not the less room on account of the furniture, for indeed there is very little in it. An old woman, who seemed coeval with the building, and greatly resembled her whom Chamont mentions in the orphan, received us at the gate, and in a house scarce human, and to me unintelligible, welcomed her master home. In short, the whole scene was so gloomy and melancholy that it threw my spirits into the lowest dejection, which my husband discerning, instead of relieving, increased by two or three malicious observations. "'There are good houses, madam,' says he, as you find in other places besides England, but perhaps you would rather be in a dirty lodgings at Bath. Happy, my dears, the woman who, in any state of life, hath a cheerful, good-natured companion to support and comfort her. But why do I reflect on happy situations only to aggravate my own misery? My companion, far from clearing up the gloom of solitude, soon convinced me that I must have been wretched with him in any place, and in any condition. In a word, he was a surly fellow, a character perhaps you have never seen, for indeed no woman ever sees it exemplified but in a father, a brother, or a husband. And though you have a father, he is not of that character. This surly fellow had formerly appeared to me the very reverse, and so he did still to every other person— "'Good heaven! How is it possible for a man to maintain a constant lie in his appearance abroad and in company, and to content himself with showing disagreeable truth only at home?' "'Here, my dear, they make themselves amends for the uneasy restraint which they put on their tempers in the world. For I have observed, the more merry and gay and good-humoured my husband hath at any time been in company, the more sullen and morose he was sure to become at our next private meeting.' How shall I describe his barbarity? To my fondness he was cold and insensible. My little comical ways, which you, my Sophie, and which others have called so agreeable, he treated with contempt. In my most serious moments he sung and whistled, and whenever I was thoroughly dejected and miserable he was angry and abused me, for though he was never pleased with my good humor, nor ascribed it to my satisfaction in him, yet my low spirits always offended him, and those he imputed to my repentance of having, as he said, married an Irishman. You will easily conceive, my dear Graveairs, I ask your pardon, I really forgot myself, that when a woman makes an imprudent match in the sense of the world, that is, when she is not an errant prostitute to pecuniary interest, she must necessarily have some inclination and affection for her man. You will as easily believe that this affection may possibly be lessened. Nay, I do assure you, contempt will wholly eradicate it. This contempt I now began to entertain for my husband, whom I now discovered to be, I must use the expression, an errant blockhead. 
Perhaps you will wonder I did not make this discovery long before, but women will suggest a thousand excuses to themselves for the folly of those they like. Besides, give me leave to tell you, it requires a most penetrating eye to discern a fool through the disguises of gaiety and good breeding. It will be easily imagined that, when I once despised my husband, as I confess to you I soon did, I must consequently dislike his company, and indeed I had the happiness of being very little troubled with it, for our house was now most elegantly furnished, our cellars well stocked, and dogs and horses provided in great abundance. As my gentleman therefore entertained his neighbors with great hospitality, so his neighbors resorted to him with great alacrity, and sports and drinking consumed so much of his time that a small part of his conversation, that is to say, of his ill humors, fell to my share. Happy would it have been for me if I could as easily have avoided all other disagreeable company, but, alas, I was confined to some which constantly tormented me, and the more as I saw no prospect of being relieved from them. These companions were my own racking thoughts, which plagued and in a manner haunted me night and day. In this situation I passed through a scene, the horrors of which can neither be painted nor imagined. Think, my dear, figure if you can to yourself what I must have undergone. I became a mother by the man I scorned, hated, and detested. I went through all the agonies and miseries of a lying in, ten times more painful in such a circumstance than the worst labor can be when one endures it for a man one loves in a desert, or rather, indeed, a scene of riot and revel, without a friend, without a companion, or without any of those agreeable circumstances which often alleviate, and perhaps sometimes more than compensate, the sufferings of our sex at that season. Chapter 6. In which the mistake of the landlord throws Sophia into a dreadful consternation. Mrs. Fitzpatrick was proceeding in her narrative when she was interrupted by the entrance of dinner, greatly to the concern of Sophia, for the misfortunes of her friend had raised her anxiety, and left her no appetite but what Mrs. Fitzpatrick was dissatisfied by her relation. The landlord now intended with a plate under his arm, and with the same respect in his countenance and address which he would have put on had the ladies arrived in a coach and six. The married lady seemed less affected with her own misfortunes than was her cousin, for the former eat very heartily, whereas the latter could hardly swallow a morsel. Sophia likewise showed more concern and sorrow in her countenance than appeared in the other lady, who, having observed these symptoms in her friend, begged her to be comforted, saying, "'Perhaps I may yet end better than either you or I expect.' Our landlord thought he had now an opportunity to open his mouth, and was resolved not to omit it. "'I am sorry, madam,' cries he, that your ladyship can't eat, for to be sure you must be hungry after so long fasting. I hope your ladyship is not uneasy at anything, for, as madam there says, all may end better than anybody expects. A gentleman who was here just now brought excellent news, and perhaps some folks who have given other folks the slip may get to London before they are overtaken, and if they do, I make no doubt but they will find people who will be very ready to receive them." All persons under the apprehension of danger convert whatever they see and hear into the objects of that apprehension. Sophia, therefore, immediately concluded, from the foregoing speech, that she was known and pursued by her father. She was now struck with the utmost consternation, and for a few minutes deprived of the power of speech, which she no sooner recovered than she desired the landlord to send his servants out of the room, and then, addressing herself to him, said, "'I perceive, sir, you know who we are.' But I beseech you, nay, I am convinced if you have any compassion or goodness, you will not betray us. I betray your ladyship, quoth the landlord. No, and then he swore several very hearty oaths. I would sooner be cut into ten thousand pieces. I hate all treachery. I, I never betrayed anyone in my life yet, and I am sure I shall not begin with so sweet a lady as your ladyship. 
all the world would very much blame me if I should, since it will be in your ladyship's power so shortly to reward me. My wife can witness for me. I knew your ladyship the moment you came into the house. I said it was your honor before I lifted you from your horse, and I shall carry the bruises I got in your ladyship's service to the grave. But what signified that, as long as I saved your ladyship? To be sure, some people this morning would have thought of getting a reward, but no such thought ever entered into my head. I would sooner starve than take any reward for betraying your ladyship. I promise you, sir, says Sophia. If it be ever in my power to reward you, you shall not lose by your generosity. Alack a day, madam, answered the landlord. In your ladyship's power, heaven put it as much into your will. I am only afraid your honor will forget such a poor man as an innkeeper. But if your ladyship should not, I hope you will remember what reward I refused. Refused! That is, I would have refused, and to be sure it may be called refusing, for I might have had it certainly, and to be sure you might have been in some houses. But for my part would not methinks for the world have your ladyship wronged me so much as to imagine I ever thought of betraying you, even before I heard the good news. What news, pray? says Sophia, something eagerly. Hath not your ladyship heard it, then? cries the landlord. Nay, like enough, for I heard it only a few minutes ago. And if I had never heard it, may the devil fly away with me this instant, if I would have betrayed your honor. No, if I would, may I. Here he subjoined several dreadful imprecations, which Sophia at last interrupted, and begged to know what he meant by the news. He was going to answer when Mrs. Honor came running into the room, all pale and breathless, and cried out, Madam, we are all undone, all ruined. They are come, they are come. These words almost froze up the blood of Sophia, but Mrs. Fitzpatrick asked Honor who were come. Who, answered she, why the French? Several hundred thousands of them are landed, and we shall all be murdered and ravished. As a miser, who hath in some well-built city a cottage, valued twenty shillings, when at a distance he is alarmed with the news of a fire, turns pale and trembles at his loss. But when he finds the beautiful palaces only are burnt, and his own cottage remains safe, he comes instantly to himself and smiles at his good fortunes. Or as, for we dislike something in the former simile, the tender mother, when terrified with the apprehension that her darling boy is drowned, is struck senseless and almost dead with consternation. But when she is told the little master is safe, and the victory only with twelve hundred brave men gone to the bottom, Life and sense again return, maternal fondness enjoys the sudden relief from all its fears, and the general benevolence which at another time would have deeply felt the dreadful catastrophe lies fast asleep in her mind. So Sophia, than whom none was more capable of tenderly feeling the general calamity of her country, found such immediate satisfaction from the relief of those terrors she had of being overtaken by her father, that the arrival of the French scarce made any impression on her. She gently chid her maid for the fright into which she had thrown her, and said she was glad it was no worse, for that she had feared somebody else was come. Ay, ay, quoth the landlord, smiling, her ladyship knows better things. She knows the French are our very best friends, and come over hither only for our good. They are the people who are to make old England flourish again. I warrant her honor thought the duke was coming, and that was enough to put her into a fright. I was going to tell your ladyship the news. His honor's majesty, heaven bless him, hath given the duke the slip, and is marching as fast as he can to London, and ten thousand French are landed to join him on the road. Sophia was not greatly pleased with this news, nor with the gentlemen who related it, but, as she still imagined he knew her, for she could not possibly have any suspicion of the real truth, she durst not show any dislike, 
and now the landlord, having removed the cloth from the table, withdrew, but at his departure frequently repeated his hopes of being remembered hereafter. The mind of Sophia was not at all easy under the supposition of being known at this house, for she still applied to herself many things which the landlord had addressed to Jenny Cameron. She therefore ordered her maid to pump out of him by what means he had become acquainted with her person, and who had offered him the reward for betraying her. She likewise ordered the horses to be in readiness by four in the morning, at which hour Mrs. Fitzpatrick promised to bear her company, and then, composing herself as well as she could, she desired that lady to continue her story. End of section 39